How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the Chop Fit. Over the course of the past year, the Chop Fit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your Chop Fit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk, and today we are welcoming the incredible Ken Scott. Ken is uh, actor, stuntman, author, uh, author of Teenage Ninja to Mutant Turtle, Becoming the Real Raphael, uh, incredible book. And uh, Ken, it's great to have you on here today. John, it's good to be here with you. I appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out, and uh, glad to spend some time with you. No, it's uh, super, super awesome. And what's funny, I started this at the onset of the pandemic last year, uh, just to kind of stay busy and focused with learning different people's backgrounds, uh, martial arts, mental health, leadership, law enforcement, military, whatever it was under the security umbrella. And I started thinking, there's a ton of guests or people out there as a kid, I grew up there, I was like, man, it'd be so cool to be this guy. And to actually talk to Raphael from Ninja Turtles uh, from the 90s, like it's, it's kind of surreal because growing up as a kid, I didn't realize how much work went into that role, how there's four people that actually are part of that one character. And for you to be part of that lore and history, I mean, that's got to be something so, so cool. Yeah, you know, I look, uh, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, having been part of Raphael and the Ninja Turtles, is the single biggest accomplishment, most noteworthy accomplishment of my life. Um, while it's it's fantastic to be part of something that changed the whole world, you know, um, I'm still only just a small part of it. And there's this whole canon of, of Ninja Turtles out there that swept the world from comic books and cartoons and movies and all that stuff. But to get to be one of just the few guys that actually wore a Ninja Turtle costume. And there's sort of a lot of noteworthy moments about doing stuff, being in that costume. But not only just saying you were part of it, but the things it's allowed me to do, like my low level of celebrity has allowed me to, you know, travel across the country, if not to other countries, and work with charitable organizations that mean something to me. You know, I work with a lot of uh, uh, military and first responders, a lot of police. I do a lot of fundraising for widows and orphans and kids and things like that. The book that I have out right now is uh, raising money for the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Mm -hmm. So being a part of it is amazing and fantastic. And it's led to a lot of great life experiences and meeting people and doing stuff and being in magazines and TV and all that. Um, but it's also been really great to use that same power to do really some good things for my fellow man, if you will, in the earth. Well, it's, it's interesting because the character you portray, obviously whoever, if you're not familiar with the lore and the history of the TGB Deterrent, you've probably been living in a sewer, uh, but a good guy, but you're yourself portraying this good character. You yourself are emulating the same traits that the kids grew up reading. Because I remember the, the, the cartoon, um, I had the action figures, that little truck that would shoot the pizzas. Uh, but it wasn't until the movies, uh, specifically The Secret of the Ooze, where I was kind of like, this is so like surreal to me that these are people from a book or a cartoon that these are, it, it didn't really dawn on me until years down the road as I got into movies and with CGI and practical effects. But your book 
the one of the cool things about your book is the fact that you actually deep, dig deep into breaking down what goes into that character, the puppeteer, the voice actor, the stunt man, the actual actor. And if for those that haven't read the book yet, I, I highly suggest you do. But could you give like a kind of like a quick run through of what exactly goes into uh, a, someone like yourself portraying one simple aspect of this character? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, in the original Ninja Turtle movies from the 90s that I was associated with, it's a live action movie, there's no CGI, and it's actually guys in costumes being the, the turtles and all that. Well, what a lot of people don't know is it takes four people to play each turtle. There's a, what we call the actor turtle, and that's a guy who wears the turtle suit, and inside his head, there's 27 different electronic motors or servos that operate the mouth and the eyes and the cheeks and all that stuff. Um, and then off camera from them is a puppeteer from the Jim Henson group, the same people that do the Muppets and all that Muppet show. And a puppeteer is actually responsible for operating via remote control those 27 different motors. So the actor turtle and the puppeteer work very closely together on what's called first unit in the movie. That's the main unit that shoots all the acting and the dramatic scenes. They work very closely as, as a tandem to create the performance. In the first Ninja Turtle movie, Josh Pace was the actor who, was, who wore the suit for Raphael and uh, a gentleman named David Greenaway from the Henson organization was the puppeteer. In addition to those two guys, there's a third guy that comes in that wears a Ninja Turtle suit that's basically empty. It doesn't have any motors in it to make it lighter. And that's the action or stunt person that's doing all the fighting for the turtle. Um, in the first movie, that's what I was for Raphael. And then finally, after those three guys are done doing their work, when the movie's all said and done, in post-production, a fourth guy will come in and do the voice for the turtle. Uh, so it takes four guys just to make that one character, not to mention all the people that sculpted the suit and painted the suit and all right. that kind of stuff. It's not like you go to Amazon and buy one of these suits. Every one of these suits was pretty much like a quarter million dollar costume because of there was remote control receivers and computer consoles uh, underneath the shell and cables running everywhere. They were, at the time, the Henson Group called it Puppet Tektronics. And it was the most cutting edge animatronic stuff you could imagine that had come out in movies or theme parks at that time. Um, what was really interesting to see was the puppeteers who were off camera, they would wear these headsets. And on the headset, it had these three lasers, one that pointed to the lip, one that pointed to the chin and one that pointed to their cheek. And whenever they spoke, those lasers would pick up what their mouth and jaw was doing related through remote control and make the turtle head work the same way. So it was a lot of technology and a lot of manpower coming together to form each of the turtles. Now, you, you kind of brought up the fact where there's, there's a lot of work that goes into this and your humor in the book, uh, which kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't anticipating this type of really self-depreciating, but really real funny humor. And you always joke about, oh, how hot is it in these costumes or how hot is it in this stuff? And I thought that was funny, but there must be a lot of sitting around during like some of these fight scenes where do you like what you, you do kind of talk about, but again, for those that haven't read it how do you pass time or how do you stay focused where you've got these other aspects going on, but then when it's your time to be in there, how do you kind of do you, once you start the day, do you, are you locked into the, you done building or Pat Johnson's like, Hey, you're done for the day. Or how do you kind of stay locked in? Well, it all depends on kind of what you're doing that day. 
Um, you know, I was fortunate in the first movie, I was the stunt actor for Raphael or the stunt man doing all the fighting and the action. In the second movie, Secret of the Use, I was the actor with the, the motors and everything in the head. So I've kind of, and, and they, they work separately. We, we shot two units the same time throughout the film. So on one stage, they were shooting all the fight scenes while on another stage, they're shooting the turtles with April O'Neil and the puppeteers and all that stuff. So depending on what you're doing, we'll give you will allow you to set whatever mindset you need for the rest of the day on movies you know there's the old expression hurry up and wait everybody because time is money everybody's running around and they're setting up lights and they're moving cameras and they're doing all this stuff to try to get ready but if you're the actor or the person that's on screen a lot of the time you're just sitting there waiting until they're ready to shoot so you might be sitting around for hours before it's time for you to go do anything and on the turtle set we had what we call major turtle breakdown. If one of the motors or the servos or something went down or remote control went wrong, the puppeteers and all the technicians would have to, sometimes it might be hours before they could figure out what to do and we could get up and shooting again. So you're on this roller coaster ride throughout the day of, oh, I gotta go up and I gotta act and do stunts and do all this. And then I gotta go sit around for a couple hours. Then I gotta go back and I gotta act and I gotta do all this. So what ends up happening is you get into this sort of rhythm of understanding the, the reset. It's like the waves of the ocean, right? The, uh, the tides of the ocean. It's in and out. You can never let yourself get way too excited when it's time to shoot. And you can never let yourself get way too far down because if they need you, you got to get all that energy back. So for me, luckily, as a martial artist, you start to develop. And Ernie Reyes Jr. was really good about this on the set. It was really important you could just sit back especially if you're wearing the turtle suit and you just have to put yourself into sort of a meditative state and just sort of be and if you're worried about when you're going to work or how tired you're feeling or anything like that that'll mentally drain you throughout the day so once you get used to that pattern and that rhythm you kind of find a way to sort of it's almost like setting your computer into sleep mode you don't shut it off you just set it into sleep mode and then it's ready to go again so luckily for me, my martial arts really helped me with that. Plus I was young and energetic and living out my fantasy. So my batteries were on full the entire right. time. Now, what kind of martial arts, what was your background in training? Why did you start uh, martial arts when you first started? You know, I started martial arts like many kids do. I was young, I was intrigued by it. Um, at one point in school, I was a small guy um, and it wasn't uncommon to get picked on every now and again. And, you know, that happened to me in school as well. And I didn't really like the way it felt. I felt so helpless and all this kind of stuff. And so I had seen a karate class at the local soccer fields, you know, the soccer fields where I've been yeah. playing. And so I just sort of took it upon myself to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to feel like that anymore. I, I, I don't really know that there's a magic answer by signing up for karate, but I had seen a kid in my school get in a fight with somebody else and he leaned back and he kicked the guy right in the head. And I thought, man, that is super cool. Well, I actually found the karate school where that kid took lessons. And I went out there and signed up to take karate for 15 bucks a month. And I started in a club that was called Zenshin Kai Gojuru. So it was based on Okinawan principles. Yep. And it was a mixture mostly of Okinawan Gojuru and some Shotokan karate. I did that for many years as a teenager. Uh, that's where I got my first black belt. I traveled and competed all over the country in tournaments, then went off to college, continued to train a little bit, got caught up in the college life, 
So training backed off a little bit. Um, but then I, I really got intense because I knew that my goal was I wanted to be an action hero in the movies. So I always kept training, always kept working out with different clubs. And then ultimately, once I ended up moving to California, I studied Shaolin and Taoist Kung Fu, uh, American Kempo, Tai Chi, and some Muay Thai. So I've had kind of a blend over time, but going into Ninja Turtles, it was all sort of uh, Okinawan and Japanese-based karate stuff for me. I uh, One of the things that I found very interesting in here is that there was a... I, when I, before I started reading the book, I jumped in assuming that if you're a stuntman, you could also be the actor under the suit. But then I, as, you, you, as you explained, it's like, no, you, like there's insurance reasons for why certain people have to do certain stuff. Uh, and I went down this whole rabbit hole where people like Tom Cruise, it's like he, he does his own stunts or if he gets hurt, he delays production and all this stuff was crazy. So when you... Was it difficult for you? And kind of explain how you were at the right place at the right time, obviously, in The Secret of Ooze when uh, Casey Jones, the actor Elias, hurts the, the guy currently in the suit, and you have to jump into that role. Is it a tough change for you? And if you could also talk about the, the other thing, too, that blew my mind is the financial, the, the pay grades that change as you go up in different roles, too. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was actually not on Secret of the Ooze. It was on number one where okay. Casey Jones got hurt with the guys. But basically what happened, for those that don't know or haven't read Teenage Ninja the Mutant Turtle, um, what happened was, you know, I've wanted to be an action hero in the movies ever since I was 13 years old. It was my life goal, just like other people want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. I wanted to be an action hero in the movies. So I did everything I could do to pursue that. I did martial arts. Um, I took, I went to acting class. I studied filmmaking as much as I could. And so what happened was I was living in North Carolina at the time. And as soon as I graduated from the University of North Carolina with a degree in film and television, I was going to jet set my way out to California and pursue my dreams of being an action hero. Well, fortunately for me, while I was going through school, Dino De Laurentiis, the famous movie producer from Serpico and Flash Gordon and a bunch of other stuff, he built a movie studio right in North Carolina because of the great tax incentives. So they started making movies down there. They made Maximum Overdrive with Emilio Estevez oh, yeah. and Raw Deal with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I went down there for a couple of summers during my college break to try to work as an extra or break into the movies, just whatever I thought I could do. I just knew they were making movies there and I had to be there. Well, what ended up happening was at some point, I ended up meeting some of the people that were in charge of casting extras for the movies. And they found out I was a martial artist they told me about this martial arts film that was coming, although they couldn't tell me a lot about it and wanted to know if I wanted to audition. Of course I wanted to audition. So I showed up at these auditions, um, ended up, there was a couple of hundred martial artists there and we were all auditioning for Pat Johnson, the legendary martial artist. A lot of people know him as the referee from the original Karate Kid because he trained Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita in karate for those movies. He well, he was, was also the, the dragon too, right? With Bruce Lee. Yeah, he actually appears in Enter the Dragon. He goes all the way back to that. Um, so Pat was the uh, fight choreographer, stunt coordinator for the first Ninja Turtle movie. And what he was doing was he was looking for local martial artists in North Carolina to play the foot soldiers so that they could get beat up by the turtles. The foot soldiers are the shredders, bad guys. They're basically the stormtroopers of the Ninja Turtle movies. Well, fortunately, I auditioned for Pat Johnson. It was a nerve wracking experience, but all my martial arts training really came through and I got hired to be one of the foot soldiers. 
Now, for the longest time, uh, when we first started working out and we were choreographing the fights, I was just one of the background foot soldiers. Pat didn't know me from Adam. I wasn't really doing that much. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, there was this one particular stunt on a skateboard and none of the other foot soldiers could seem to get it right. And I raised my hand like the guy from uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. I was like, ooh, ooh, call on me, call on me. And they, they called on me and I got to move forward. I got to give the stunt a try and I was able to do it during rehearsal. So from that moment forward, Pat Johnson and the other guys that were working on the fight choreographer, anytime they needed somebody to do something foot soldier wise, from that moment forward, they're like, hey, Ken, can you do this? Can you do that? So all of a sudden I became the foot soldier that's crashing through the skylights in April O'Neil's apartment. And in one famous moment, when all the foot soldiers break into April's apartment, um, I'm the foot soldier that does nunchucks against Michelangelo when he goes, oh, a fellow chucker, eh? And they have this nunchuck battle back and forth. So that was actually my first job. I was being paid $75 a day to be what was called a special abilities extra. So I was basically a, an extra or a background performer, but because I knew martial arts, instead of making 50 bucks a day, I was making 75 a day before taxes. So basically I'm going broke, but I'm living out my dream doing this. Well, what ended up happening at that point was uh, during early on in the filming of the movie, when Raphael meets Casey Jones in Central Park, Casey Jones hits Raphael with a cricket bat. Raphael soars through the air, lands headfirst in a trash can. And when he did, the guy who was the stunt performer, a guy from Hong Kong, broke his nose and he couldn't wear the turtle costume after that. So the producers, the stunt coordinator, the director, everybody was in a panic. What are we going to do? These costumes are tailor made for these guys. They're small guys. They got to be expert martial artists. What can happen? So Pat Johnson at that point suggested me to the producers and said, hey, I think Ken could do this. So I went to the uh, uh, the, the creature shop where the stunts, I mean, where all the costumes are made. And I basically had to squeeze into all these different turtle parts because the Raphael costume didn't actually fit me. So I had to wear like Leonardo's legs and Donatello's hands. And basically I was like this Frankenstein turtle made from all these different parts. And then they put the Raphael head on me. And lo and behold, from that moment forward, I became the stunt actor for Raphael from that point. So I went from being a special abilities extra to now I was a Screen Actors Guild stunt performer. And my pay went from like 75 bucks a day to like, I don't know, 1500 bucks a week or something like that. Um, so for me, it was a dream come true. I was watching myself, you know, my first job out of college, I got hired to be a ninja. Then after I was a ninja for a while, I got to do the nunchuck scene and, and that helped me get my Screen Actors Guild card. So I made like a day's pay for that, which was like, 450 bucks at the time. And then right after that, I became Raphael and my pay went up from there. So all within just a matter of a few weeks, I went from extra to performer to turtle in a very short amount of time. It's, uh, I love that too. Your relationship with Pat Johnson, it just seems super, like I, I was familiar with him obviously based on the stuff you mentioned into the dragon, uh, Pat Morita, Ralph traded it for uh, uh, that movie. Um, but I didn't really realize that the clout he had, if you'd actually make that connection um, and have that work relationship, you kind of share a funny story where you posted a picture for an interview or whatever, and the, he got back to him and said, hey, you can't do that. But the, when, when that happened, I'm like, oh man, here goes this, this is where the book's going to get really whatever. But it actually came almost like a, 
Easter eggs in the relationship from that. And it's just for those people that you don't have to be an actor or martial artist, whatever field you're in, could you kind of talk about the importance of creating and fostering these really good relationships with who you're working with? Because again, you might be in the right place at the right time, or you don't know if you did, if you, you never know who's watching you. Right. And for those people in my field security, always do the right thing. Even when there's no glitz and cameras, there's no red carpet, you don't know who's watching you. And this book really demonstrates that there's someone always with an eye on you. So if you could kind of talk about always doing the right thing and being ready for that moment. Yeah. I, you know, I think what happened is like for me in particular, and you might have to steer me back on the answer here a little bit, John, for me in particular, nobody in my family had ever been in the performing arts. Okay. You know, my dad was a businessman. My mom's an interior designer. My brother's a doctor. So I was really forging a new path uh, through life in doing this. And there was no internet when I was doing this. This is all in the eighties and early nineties. Um, so you really had to figure your stuff out going to do it. And when you're making it up as you go, you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And the thing is to try to make those mistakes, you know, early on, try to learn from, make them in the training hall or in practice or whatever it is that you're doing so that when you're in the real situation, you're ready for what's going to happen. But oftentimes, you know, you could come to a fork in the road and have no idea which way you're supposed to go based on your previous experience. And only somebody with more wisdom than you can help you make an informed decision. Now, you could go down the wrong path and eventually learn that wisdom for yourself, but you might waste six months or six years or whatever it is learning those lessons. I found out very early on as a martial artist that when you turn to your seniors, your instructors, your Sifu, your sensei, whatever you call that person, um, they've been down the roads before you. And they want, people like to teach. People like to feel like they're helping somebody else, especially with their expertise. So I discovered early on that finding mentor figures was an important part of development in life, whatever it was, whether it was martial arts or career or school or job or anything like that. Reaching out and finding somebody and saying, hey, look, I want to do something. I have goals and I have dreams and I have aspirations, but I realize that I don't know everything and I'm looking for some help and some guidance. And if you could help me with that, I would really greatly appreciate it. And so I learned early on to, to ask that question, to pose that. But, you know, like you said, always being ready. The key to that is you can't be an asshole. You right. can't be an asshole and just find somebody and go, hey, will you help me? because then you're just being you know, self-serving. You have to try to do as much as you can on your own and, and do the right things and take the right steps and take the right actions because these people that you're asking for help, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna say, okay, do I wanna help this person? And if I do, how is it gonna reflect on me if I help give them a leg up somewhere? So it's kind of like the old Kung Fu movies. you know, When you go see the instructor, You've got to be humble. You've got to try your best. You've got to scrub the floors and do all these things. Because if you go in there with that attitude of, hey, I'm the baddest in the land and I want to do this and you'd be honored to help me and all this stuff, you're not going to get it. You might get somewhere just on strength and you know, fortitude and all that kind of stuff. But eventually you're going to come up against some walls no matter what you do. So for me, I'm fortunate that my whole life philosophy is founded in 
martial arts and Bushido and Budo and, you know, try, even though I'm not a samurai and I don't come from the 1500s, I try to live with those same principles. And I find when you do that, other people who have had success, who live that same way, will see that and are attracted to that. And so that law of attraction of, you know, it, what is it? God helps those who help themselves, right? right? So if you live your life like you're trying to do your best and always perform well, even when you don't think anybody's watching, like you said, somebody is watching, whether it, whether it's a human being or not, somebody's watching and that energy will translate into what it needs to be because luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? We've all heard that before. I didn't make it up. And so we can say, oh, I was lucky. I just happened to be there. No, I spent my whole life preparing. I was there. I did it. And then I, 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 I looked at somebody like Pat Johnson and I was like, okay, I, you know, this man knows what he's doing. And I wanted to connect with him because I wanted to create opportunities. So one thing I talk about in my book is while I was working with Pat, I sat down and wrote him a letter. And I wrote him like this four or five page letter that just explained my life goals and who I was and what I was trying to do. And if he felt so inclined, if there was anything he could do to help me, I would appreciate it. And that, I guess that letter spoke to him and he saw what I was doing and it worked out. And from that point forward, Pat became very much a paternal figure for me and a, and a mentor. And he guided me during the Ninja Turtle movies. He guided me after sometimes he had to be angry at me and sometimes yeah. he had to be loving, but just like a father, he continued to guide me. And for years on father's day, I would always call Pat and wish him a happy father's day or go visit him or anything like that. He became very much that in my life. So it's uh, a, it's a very important part of uh, my, my journey. One of the, uh, so I was born in 85 and when these movies came out, I was six, seven, eight years old. And I remember I remember the movies. I remember the, the the comic books and the cartoon. Like I remember seeing it everywhere, like in magazine covers. But I didn't understand, or I didn't realize until you started showing pictures. But the Barbara Walters interview, uh, the halftime shows, Arizona State, the Vanilla Ice stuff. It wasn't until I realized how big this phenomenon really was. And it, it was interesting how you kind of talked about the, I would say haggling, but you were you you do your self worth for this Barbara Walters interview and this is parents and stuff. And Hey, if I'm going to do this, I need to behave the right way. It was kind of cool how you kind of put your foot down again, talking to the right people to kind of be like, Hey, say this, do this. And uh, very, very fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I can't take all the credit for that, you know, and for those that don't know, you know, John, we're talking about at the end of uh, secret of Youths, Barbara Walters showed up one day uh, at the very end and wanted to interview the turtles. And there's a rule in Hollywood that when you sign a contract to be in a movie or a TV show, the producers cannot use you or footage or anything like that for anything other than the project that you have been hired for. So for instance, if you ever see you know, a movie and somebody's watching TV and they're watching an episode of Chips on TV, well, lo and behold, Eric Estrada gets paid for that for that episode that's playing on the TV in the background of that movie because he wasn't paid for that originally. He was only paid to be in the show. So now he's got to be paid extra, if that makes sense. Right. So what happened for us was we were contracted to make the movie as Turtles. Then Barbara Walters came in and said, hey, I want to interview 
not the actors that are playing the turtles, but the actual turtles themselves. I want to interview Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo in their lair and put it on my Academy Awards special. So the producers freaked out. They're like, this is going to be a million dollars in free advertising for us. There's no way we're not going to do this. Yeah. So they came to us as the turtle actors and they said, hey, we want you guys to do this one extra day of work. As soon as the movie's done filming and everybody else goes home, we want you guys to stay and we'll give you a separate contract for that job. And it'll be one full week's pay for just that one day. And at the time, a full week's pay was, I don't know, it was probably $2,000 a week, something like that, which is great. But, you know, it was like, oh, man, and for me, fresh out of college, I was like, man, they're going to give me two grand for one whole day. That's awesome. So I was loving it. Well, then David Warner, actor that played the professor in the second movie, a a very famous actor who's been around for decades. He came to us, the the Turtles, and he said, hey, guys, let me tell you, these guys are going to take advantage of you. They're going to get millions of dollars of free advertising. You shouldn't do this job unless they pay you $20,000 $20,000 each for the day. And my jaw just dropped. <clears throat> $20,000. That's amazing. So we all got together, the four turtles, Leaf Tilden, Michelin Sisti, Mark Casso, and myself on the fourth, on the second movie. And we were like, what are we going to do? Well, we elected a leader. We elected Michelin, who played Michelangelo, to be our leader. And it was his job to go back to the producers and say, okay, we'll do the Barbara Walter special, but we want 20 grand a piece. So he went back and he told him 20 grand a piece and the producers got pissed off and they're like, screw you guys. We'll get the stuntmen and we'll put the stuntmen in the suit and they'll do it for us. And so I was like, oh no, I just lost $2,000. I just lost all this money. So I got really kind of nervous about it. So did Mark Casso. He was just like I was. Um, But then what what we underestimated was our relationship, what the producers underestimated, was our relationship with the puppeteers from the Henson group. Which goes what you said before about always being a good person. Yeah, we had, we had developed such great bonds working with these people and worked so well together that the puppeteers went back to the producers and said, you know what, we can't do it. We're not going to do it unless the actors do it for whatever technical reasons or this kind of stuff. So the producers basically had to come back to their knees, on their knees to us, and they offered us 10 grand a piece for one day's worth of work to do this thing. And I was like, oh my God, $10,000 for one day's worth of work. It was awesome. So we got a new contract, we got the 10 grand, and we spent a day with Barbara Walters. It was awesome. Now, when you do the conventions, uh, obviously the last year has been kind of crazy with everything shut down, but as you kind of gear back up to that and you do your speaking and your books and your book tour and stuff like that, do you, how, comforting is it to know that there's generations of people my age and your age that grew up with the turtles but now they have kids that are watching these characters and they come up and you say hey you helped my son or, or or my daughter uh say no to drugs or you you taught them what's good versus evil and how to be a good person and look out for your friends like how assured is that to you that you're somewhat part i mean you said you're a small part of it but i think you're a bigger part than what you say but you are a part of this lexicon where you're just the, the constant fruition of these people's uh, just kind of goodwill towards like learning from your character. Yeah. You know, I just, just this past weekend, I actually took a friend of mine to a Comic-Con that I was doing and I was like, you wait till you see what happens. It's, it's crazy at Comic-Cons. I mean, you see everything from the craziest, silliest stuff to the most touching, heart-wrenching 
you know, stories and things that you can hear. Um, because your the fan spectrum is very wide as to all the people that are involved in Ninja Turtles. And so I can't tell you over the last 30 years how many times I've met people out and about or at cons or whatever who do come up and say things like, you know, you changed my life. Ninja Turtles changed my life. Ninja Turtles saved me. I mean, literally, I have people that will come up who break down in tears when they're talking to me. And all they want is a hug because they just want to feel like, you know, this childhood hero character that helped shape their whole destiny, their values, their life, everything. It's so important to them. And we have, I've, I've gotten stories of people that have, you know, alcohol stop you know alcoholism drug use um being bullied uh being terrible students being social recluses all these things that ninja turtles the canon of ninja turtles has helped people with and i was really caught off guard when i first started to experience those things because i was just a kid i was doing my stuff yeah. and making my movies and then all of a sudden people are sharing these deep meaningful life stories with me so now today 30 years later when you when I sit at a Comic-Con table and I have these people approach me and it's all they can do to break out of their shell just to say break out of their shell. It's all they can do just to speak to me and just to get the words out and, and the crying and the shaking and things like that. It's so moving. I've been I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, it's brought me to tears a couple of times. To be a part of that is so incredibly rewarding on a humanistic level that it's almost impossible to put into, it's, it is impossible to put into words the way it affects you on the inside. It's really a beautiful, and that's why I say Ninja Turtles changed the world. It didn't right. just change it from a business point of view or kids taking martial arts. It changed people's lives, even on the smallest macrocosm level. You know, well, you still see the toys in Target, and Walmart, and now they're rebooting it again. We won't have to talk about that, but it it is crazy that here I am, thirty five years plus late years later, and it's still people are still talking about it. I'm still watching it. I'm still having the lasting impact of how good those movies really were. Yeah, you know, a lot of people come back to me and they'll see like there's constantly Ninja Turtle stuff coming out. I mean, just in the last couple of years, a whole new cartoon, Rise yep. of the Turtles, I think, or Pops. Yeah, all this stuff keeps coming out. So oftentimes people will come up to me and say, uh, so I, I guess it's coming back. And I'm like, no, you're missing the point. It, it hasn't left. Ninja Turtles is now um, as much of the tapestry of our world as Superman, Batman, the Avengers anything like that ninja turtles isn't coming and going anymore it is just gonna it's one of the things that's out there and is now part of the world was there any fear on your part putting this book out or any trepidation in the sense of uh in your head we're like hey i'm not really an author but i need to put this out here like kind of talk about your trial and error with when you finally release this book uh was there any thought of maybe maybe i should tell these stories or because for me I, you would never know half the stuff, the, the, the bit part you talk about Kevin Dash or these little pieces of, with uh, different actors and your Pat Johnson stories. I would never, you can't go on Wikipedia to find this stuff. And so for me, I'm grateful that I can actually go into someone's firsthand knowledge and learn more about this, the history of the digital. So is it, was it weird at first putting this out there? Well, and I will say that, and this is a little bit of self-aggrandizement, there's one person out there who's probably the greatest Ninja Turtle fan in the world. Her name is Michelle Ivy. 
and she's a collector of all th- all she does every day of her life is ninja turtle oriented wow. and she when she wrote her review of the book she said this is the best behind the scenes you know book and stories about ninja turtles ever she goes even i didn't know this stuff uh, amazing so there is a lot of stuff in there now what you guys are reading is 66,000 words of what was an 85,000 word book. Wow. And so when, when you, I first wrote the book, you know, you asked if there was any trepidation. Well, there wasn't so much trepidation about putting it out about whether people would like it or not. Certainly I, I hope they would, but I had, I would, it was actually inspired by um, a couple of things. I was inspired by Ty Mock, who was in Last Dragon, the old yeah. Barry Gordy movie. Yep. I had met him at a Comic-Con and he had written a book it was called Time Off, The Last Dragon, the story of being Time Off or something like that. And um, and I got a lot of props for Time Off. I love that movie. And I read his book and I was like, I could write a book, you know? I think I could write this. And I, I write, that's what I do. I'm a screenwriter. I write for advertising. So writing is not foreign to me, but I had never written a book. So I called a buddy of mine who is an author. Um, and I said, hey, you know, what does it take to write a book? He said, well, it's got to be about 50,000 words or something like that. Um, and I said, all right, let me see if I can start to grind something out. It just so happens at that time that my father was ill. He was terminally ill at the time. And he had started to write down just a list, a bullet point list of his memories. And he was like, he told me, he said, Ken, I'm trying to go back as far as I can to when I was born and see if I, what I can remember all the way just for my life. So while he was going through his illness and doing that, he and I started trading lists back and forth. And I would write down some things in my life and, and we were just talking about it. It was a great experience. Well, then as I got through my list and got through Ninja Turtles and I started to combine that with all the stories I had been telling at Comic-Cons over the years, I was like, wow, I think here's the book right here. So I wrote the book. I did what's called mental vomit. I vomited all my ideas all over the page and you never want to read somebody's first draft. And I had a couple of people that I respect read it for different reasons. One, hey, is there anything offensive in here? Am I being a jerk to anybody? Um, how does, is it boring? How does this, so I, all those questions. And as, a good, as any good writer will tell you, writing is rewriting. So I had all this feedback come in. I took that 85, 88,000 word book that I'd written. And then I just started basically what's called killing your children. Well, I guess I won't tell that story and threw it out. Don't tell this story. And I did have some moments where I talked some shit about some other people right? Um, because I was like, what have I got to lose anymore? I'm not in Hollywood anymore. I can tell whatever stories I want uh, because not everybody's a sweet, nice person. And not everybody on Ninja Turtles was that way. So I told a couple of stories where I, I let it be known. This guy was a jerk and that guy's a cheater and this and that. And as I got through the second phase of the book and started to read it, I was like, you know, this is forever. Once this is in print and it goes out and somebody buys a single copy, I can never take it back and change it. And as somebody who's always trying to be, never always successful, but somebody who's always trying to be on the path of self-improvement and enlightenment, one of the things I didn't want to do is, and I try to remove from my life, is talking ill of others. And I thought, boy, even though this is going to be a great story, and even though after 30 years, maybe I'm getting back at this guy for being a jerk, that's not me now. So I tried to remove everything that I thought was going to paint anybody else in a bad light, because that was not my intention. 
Um, so I had some trepidation with all that to go back to your question, but I felt like once I went through and honed everything down and turned it into the book it is now, I felt totally confident in putting this book out. I thought, um, you know, I didn't know if people were going to like it, but I knew that I got some good feedback by early readership. And then it was just a question of putting your soul out there and saying, well, I hope they like me. Um, but I wasn't concerned about anything. The only thing I was concerned about was the original title of the book was going to be Confessions of a Ninja Turtle. And I, man, I love that title. I just thought it was yeah. great. But I thought for sure I would get a cease and desist order because Ninja Turtle is a trademark name. And um, I was all prepared to release it as Confessions of a Ninja Turtle. And I, I actually designed two book covers. I designed one with that title and one with the current title, Teenage Ninja to Mutant Turtle, which nobody can, there's none of those are trademark names. Right. Um, and what I thought I was gonna do was release the book, get a cease and desist from Nickelodeon or Viacom or who's ever got it. Once I got that cease and desist, I was gonna do a huge press release that says like Viacom fighting Ninja Turtle and all this stuff. And then I was gonna re-release the book under a different yeah. title. Unfortunately, once you realize how much work goes into releasing a book, the last thing you want to do is redo it. And secondly, because everybody self-publishes now through Amazon, if you re-release the book, you lose all that juice, that SEO juice that you built up originally. So it really would not have behooved me to do the two titles. So that was the one concern I had, but I didn't follow through with it. Very, uh, again, Super cool. And the rumor has it, you could go to your website, you read a long a, a, uh, chapter that was removed from the book? Yes. Some, yes. On the website is, a, uh, is one chapter. It's not Ninja Turtle related, but I will say, you know, what, what, I'm, what I hoped was, and what seemed to work for the most part, especially based on the reviews, is that people would like my writing style and the voice that I used. And I've been, you know, I'm sure not everybody does, but I'm fortunate enough to have gotten a tremendous amount of positive reviews. It was an Amazon bestseller. It was an Amazon top pick and all that. And so I just released a, a deleted chapter there. And now I'm in the process of, I'm halfway through my second book right now. Now, what happened after Ninja Turtles. Now the book, I'm glad you bring that up because there's some stuff I want to talk about. So the book ends with, hey, that leads to the next chapter. And I'm a big VHS uh, movie collector. I've always loved, I still watch my VHS. Uh, I love, but I, specifically to action, like uh, martial arts, blood sport, you see an action to all this stuff. But your movie uh, showdown with Billy Blanks, uh, Patrick Kilpatrick, who's been a guest on the show. Um, you've worked with some really top people in that side of the world. Bolo Young and Shoot Fighter, uh, mm -hmm. Cynthia Rothrock and Sword to Justice. Now, when you do those type of movies, how different is it coming in there when you have a at least i would say people know those people more because they're maybe they're more prolific in the sense with their martial art per se but you're just as talented as a martial artist but is it weird working or fun working with those type of talents where it's like hey you're in showdown you're world-class billy blanks i mean this is a top guy so that movie itself is such a cult classic yeah 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 i was fortunate enough to be a, a big part of showdown that movie was actually written for me to be in and um and i was not a, nobody knew me i was behind the mask in ninja turtles and so imperial entertainment had met my manager just talked to my manager and originally we talked about being in the movie double dragon 
and I'll get I'll, I'll get back to your question, but I'm going to go down this rabbit hole yeah. for a second. Um, and after we met, they uh, they wrote Showdown, but I didn't have a name. I don't I did not have a name to drive foreign sales or anything like that. And they needed somebody from the martial arts world to really be the bigger name on the poster and enter Billy Blanks, um, who went on to do Taibo much later than that, but at the time was very well known for doing a slew of what are referred to as independent martial arts films, which I'm sure, John, you've seen every King single of the one. Kickboxers. King of the Kickboxers was his first appearance TV on the big yep. Yeah. So just on and on and on. So I got to work with Billy Blanks in that. Yes, I got to work with uh, Brian James was in that movie, oh, who's yep. the replicant in, uh, um, what's the movie? Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner. Yeah, that's yep. it. Thanks. Um, got to work again with Patrick Kilpatrick, who's a very intense individual. Yes. Um, then, I, you know, I've gotten to do other stuff. I've gotten to work with Gary Daniels. I've gotten to work with Cynthia Rothrock. I've worked with Bola Young. I've worked with Billy Zabka. Um, I continue to work with Pat Johnson on some other stuff. I've worked with a lot of actors that the general public doesn't know that um, appeared in Big Trouble in Little China and things like that. And, you know, a Bob Schott who was in Jim Cotta and just all this stuff. So even though my, even though my personal body of work is really small, between my stunt work and my acting work, I've actually worked with, I mean, a litany of very well-known people and famous martial artists. Two things happen when I work with those people. One is, um, if I'm not the star of the movie, like I was in Showdown, the first thing that happens is, especially when you're immature, is a little bit of jealousy, you know? Yeah. When I walk yeah. into a movie set and I'm just doing a day part and Gary Daniels, who I love to death, is is the star you know i sit there and i go i wish i was the star i wish i was yeah, doing this you know i want to do that the second thing that happens is and i'm going to go back to that mentorship thing i'm getting the opportunity to work with somebody who's got experience and knowledge and craft and art and all that and the best thing that i can do is be the most receptive and giving student that i can in that moment show them all the deference, show them all the respect, try to learn from them. Not because I'm trying to get anything out of them, not because I want them to be like, oh, let me hire Ken for another movie. Although you hope that happens just based on the experience, but you have an opportunity to learn and share the screen or just share the day. You know, we talked about how often in a movie set you're sitting around for a long time when you're not shooting. Well, when you're sitting around a movie set, with Bola Young, you know, Cynthia Rothrock, Gary Daniels, anybody like that, the opportunity to engage in conversation and hear stories and learn from them is amazing. So for me, having wanted to be an action hero ever since I was 13, any opportunity I had to spend on the set with any other actor or martial artist was just like a dream come true. It was just pure joy every time, a chance to learn and a chance to make new friends, hopefully. Now, I'm sure obviously you're going to talk about this in the new book, but when it comes to something like Showdown as the actor martial artist, are, were you, and I don't know enough about this movie per se, about, hopefully you do talk about this, but as the stuntman, are you allowed to view your own stunts in these type of movies? Or was this because you were, had a star role in these movies that for insurance purposes, you couldn't be the martial artist. You just had to focus on being the actor not take the bumps and throw arounds or knock through a wall type stuff no that's a that's a good question you know there's really two i'm this is i'm oversimplifying things here so i don't want anybody to give us any crap about it 
there's two different kinds of stunt work, okay? There's gags, falling out of a window, getting hit by a car, wrecking a motorcycle, doing anything. And then there's fighting or, and, and when in the stunt world, you know, there's the, there's the hero doing the fighting and then there's the guys that get beat up. And when you get beat up, it's called doing ground and pound. Um, you know, different than the MMA ground and pound right. we use. But, you know, if you're a, if like my good buddy, Marcus Young is a very famous stuntman in uh, Hollywood. Um, he's one of he's been his whole career ground and pound. You know, he shows up on set and he gets beat up by Steven Seagal or Jean-Claude Van Damme or whoever it is. Well, when you're the hero of the movie, whether you're Jeff Wincott or Jean-Claude Van Damme or who, when it comes to the fighting and the action, when you're in your prime, you do all that stuff yourself. Okay. Yeah. Now, the moment you need to go crashing through a window or get hit by a car or fall off a motorcycle or something like that, they bring in a stunt person because they cannot afford for you to get hurt doing something, you know, outlandish and ridiculous because time is money. It's hundreds, if it's hundreds of thousands on a small show, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a day yeah, and millions on a big show if you shut down or if you lose a star or something like that. So when you hear about stars saying they do their own stunts, yes, there are some, you know, if Tom Cruise has to throw a punch or fall down on a stunt pad, Yes, he just did his own stunt. And Tom Cruise is a, is a unique case because they do a big thing about rigging him up in odd ways to do crazy things. But when it just comes to any old actor, you know, doing that stuff, they don't do their own stunts. They do some of their fighting. They do some things and that allows them to say that. But they're but it's also a publicity kind of thing because cool. stunt people are working hard to make those guys look good. So anyway, when it comes down to something like showdown, yeah, that's all me. I had no stunt double in showdown whatsoever. Um, it, in other movies, I stunt doubled for other people. Like I was in Newsies with Christian Bale and I was the stunt double for the second lead in that movie, an actor named David Moscow. Yep. And he was the guy who played when Tom Hanks was in big, when he was a kid, it was David Moscow. So David Moscow's what's called the second lead in Newsies. And I was his double. So every day I would show up to work. I would get dressed just like David. They put makeup on my face, curl my hair, make me look just like David. And then anytime David had to get in a fight as a newspaper boy or do anything, that was me doing that stuff. So um, as the action hero, uh, no, yes, I got to do all my own action and fighting. And then as a stunt guy, I got to do all the stunts and stuff for somebody else. And for anybody else, it's always a mix of things. Right. Now I've had on the show, Richard Norton, Kathy Long, Chris Casabasa, Keith Cook, uh, Olivia Grunner, all these top people, but they also had a background in stunt work. And, and I'm going to ask you the same question. Do you think there's not enough being done for award season or this? I mean, I know, I think the Jupiter awards do like these, uh, uh, for top uh, stunt men, stunt women type team type stuff. But when I, when I watch the Academy Awards or I go to the summer movies, I love the big box office, Fast, Fast and Furious or Avengers. I know, talking to people like yourself, that there's a lot of men and women that make this stuff look the way it does outside the CGI. Do you think there's enough out there for awards and type of stuff where the, the stunt men and women like yourself get the accolades you deserve? Man, that's a tough question. You know, I, I think there's or, a thing called the Taurus Awards, which are the stunt yeah. awards that are out there. Um, 
you know, if I'm, if I'm going to side with all my stunt buddies, I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely. There should be more recognition. So, you know, in the old days, that's the last thing the studios wanted was recognition that there were stunt people doing stuff. So that's the reason politically and historically that it's never had its place in the movies because it's like, Hey, we don't want to advertise that John Wayne or Steve McQueen or whatever gets a double for these things because that's going to undermine their star power and the enigmas that they are. Um, I also believe, especially today in the day of CGI, it's very difficult now to discern what's what and who's doing what and things like that. It can be very difficult. So if I was to take that out of the equation and say, hey, look, is there, is there a way to judge these things? Then yes, I absolutely believe the stunt community should be recognized to a greater degree because when you, when you work and live in Hollywood, stunt people are the action heroes for movie stars, you know? We all look at movie stars and there are action heroes, but actually, you know, Burt Reynolds used to love to hang out with stunt guys. That's all he did. He hung out with all those guys. And that's why he made that movie Hooper. Cause he was like, man, I just love stunt guys. Those are the real deal. They're the real guys. And I got to work with Terry Leonard and he's one of those old school stunt guys. That's just been around, you know, he's been around. He, he worked with Yakima Knut. The first stunt guy, you know, ever, the grandfather of all stunt people. And for those that don't know, Terry Leonard, not only is a very famous stunt guy, he's the guy that doubled Indiana Jones when he does the stagecoach stunt underneath the truck when he gets dragged. And he's also in the Tomb of Souls or whatever that is with all the snakes. So, um, yes, I do believe that stunt guys could deserve a lot more recognition because they're freaking awesome. It's also, you kind of hit to that, though, uh, but... If from like Richard Doris specifically, he goes, John, we do this stuff. We're not doing this for the accolades. We do this because we love what we do and this stuff. Um, so it's kind of cool where it's like, I do get why someone like yourself, it's like, hey, the right people know who did this stuff. And I, 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 and I kind of like that too, because in my field, oh, how'd that guy get to there from here safely or whatever? You know how he got there. You don't know my name. You don't know who I am, but you know that artist got there. For me, that's what's important to me. You had a safe movie. You had a safe training experience. So I think that's super, super vital. You know, when it comes to martial arts and stuff, um, you know, one of the things they teach, you know, a big part of it is humility, right? It's like, what, what's the point of celebrating yourself for an accomplishment? Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't feel good. Look, I like it. I like celebrating my book and getting good reviews. Yeah. I mean, everybody likes compliments and to be celebrated. So I don't want to deny that part of our human existence. But when it comes down to like, you know, if you're a stunt guy and you get recognized for a stunt, it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? If it means you're going to get more work, meaning you can put more food on the table for your family, then I'm wholeheartedly behind it. But if you're just doing it because you want to be like, hey, look at me, I did a great thing. You know, I I don't, I don't really know what the purpose is then other than ego fulfillment, which again, I understand, not right. saying it's bad, but it's like, okay, well, what's, you know, what's the point? For me, I've met a lot of badasses in my life, whether it's military guys, security guys, cops, anything like that. The last thing those people care about is being celebrated or the, or the you know, all that aggrandizement of what happens for it. They're the most low-key usually quiet, you know, they're, they're the ones you want, the ones that aren't talking. It's the old Taoist thing. Those who speak yeah. don't know. Those who know don't speak. 
you know? So there's something to be found in there with the martial arts part as well. And I think as a stunt guy, I know the stunt people do take a lot of pride in that stuff. Now, uh, before I let you go, this has been a blast. Um, obviously, you get the book at Amazon, uh, your website, social media. Where can people find you? Where can people kind of check out where you're going, where you've been, and stuff like that? You know, turtleconfessions.com is probably a great place to start. Turtleconfessions.com is a place where you can see it. It's my author website. You can see about the book. There's links to go buy the book on Amazon. Um, oh, and by the way, it's the 30th anniversary this year of Secret of the Ooze. So right, the book is only $9.99 on Amazon right now, and it's only $3.99 on Kindle. But if you go to turtleconfessions.com, outside of that, you can find me on Facebook under Ken Scott-Raphael. It's pretty easy. It's Raphael's the picture. And on Instagram, I'm Kenjutsu with two Ns. So if you get a Kenjutsu, uh, you can find me. Awesome. This has uh, been great, Ken. Thank you for your time. I'm looking forward to the uh, new book and uh, have fun at the conventions and check it out everything as the world opens up. Right on, John. I really appreciate spending the time with you today. Thanks a awesome. lot. Thank you. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you liked what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. <laughs>